You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we're going to be talking about something that nobody would have expected if we hadn't pre-warned them about it, so that you don't have to. I'm JR. Hello, I'm Lee. And I'm Simon. Yes, and nobody will understand why you did that. No. <laughs> so you're just going to end up looking silly? Uh, what, on a podcast? Yeah, I know. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> right. Oh, i tell you what. Let's start with an email. David Kitchen from Australia. Hello, David. Dear Blue Box team, a while since I've written, but I continue to enjoy your episodes. I love the idea of a cutaway episode devoted to non-genre films. My nominations for best three would be Empire of the Sun, arguably the movie where all the best Spielberg tropes and styles come together, Goodwill Hunting, Ooh, good film. brilliant writing, amazing cast, and American Pie, in turns hilarious and sentimental. It's a good three. I agree with the points... <laughs> We'll find out in a minute because mm. none of us know what any of the other three's films are, yeah. except Lee's already guessed one of mine, you bastard. <laughs> <clears throat> David continues and says, I agree with the points you make on your most recent episode about Stephen Moffat and the rumoured season break. People seem to forget that Moffat is himself a hired gun of the BBC paid to produce and write what they want when they want it. And since Doctor Who and Sherlock probably fill a similar audience space, the BBC has to shuffle its resources, including Moffat and money, to best deliver for that audience without saturating the market. All common sense stuff, and in my opinion, nothing to get worked up about. Finally, thanks for the mentions of my appearance on the 42 to Doomsday podcast. Yes, I probably see the present debate about the BBC differently to you guys, but I won't, won't bore your audience with the details. All the best, David from Melbourne. So in reverse order, he's mentioned the 42 to Doomsday podcast. Eric Saywood picture. Ah, right. That was a practical joke by those Australian bastards. <laughs> <laughs> what, so it wasn't real? No, it was a genuine... What happened was... <laughs> and this is why it confused me, because when I got it, my first reaction was, oh, somebody's playing a prank. But then the only people I could think of were the Australians, and I mm. thought, well, if they were playing a prank, then surely it would have been posted in Australia. Mm. And as it wasn't posted in Australia, I thought, no, that can't be right. But what actually happened was 10th Planet events were doing a signing. And what happens is people go in, like Terence Dix, for example, will go into the shop and sign. And if you want to go into the shop and get a signature, you go in the shop and get a signature. But if you live somewhere else, you can order one online. And while he's in the shop, they will have him sign it for you and then post it out to you. Right. So... Rob from Who Wars 
<laughs> went onto 10th Planet events to get a Terence Dix autograph, noticed that Eric Sayward was signing that same weekend or whatever, and said, oh, I'll get one of those for JR, he'll love it. So it is actually signed by Eric Sayward. Oh yeah, it says, to my friend JR, Eric Sayward. Oh, no, 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 it's so genuine. Funny. But obviously it was posted from 10th Planet in London, which is why. And they posted it, and because it was Rob from Who Wars rather than Mark from 42 to Doomsday, although they colluded on it. Because Mark has my actual address, but Rob doesn't. So mm. Rob had it sent to the Starburst offices and they forwarded it on to me. <laughs> <laughs> Nevertheless, an Eric Sayward signature still has pride of place in my downstairs lavatory. <laughs> Mark said something quite funny. He said, you, you need to take the R off that. Make friend. To fiend. my fiend, yes. <laughs> well, yeah, of course. What they didn't realise was that I had Eric Sayward's email address. <laughs> <laughs> so I sent him an email saying, well, I think that's a really big gesture of you considering all the things I've said about you in the, <laughs> the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I got a... Got a... No, I got a very courteous email back from him right. yesterday. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, his other points. That was Stephen Moffat. We talked about that. Um, his three films, American Pie. Yeah, I wouldn't choose it as one of my best non-genre films, but you've both seen American Pie? Mm. Yeah, it's very funny, actually. Yeah. It's a really good film as it's well. It's a really good film. I think it was, um, it was needed because American comedy films up to that point weren't particularly brilliant, I don't think. They were starting to get very samey, and American Pie just pushed it. Actually. It's that Porky's for the new generation. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. I say Porky's. Yeah. But what it did was it took the female characters and made them empowered and yeah. took the male characters and made them silly. Yeah. And I think most of the films that have come along since American Pie have kind of missed that really haven't they mm. which is and that's what American Pie that did that made it universal because all boys know that when they're chasing skirt they're silly and all women know that they've got the power right so you know American, American Pie I mean it's a great you know it's it's such a huge phrase for America as well American Pie Mum's Apple Pie American Pie and then, you know, when you realise the scene that involves him, the American guy, <laughs> it's possibly the most gratuitous and childish scene ever yeah. on film. You but think, very this funny. Is perfect, yeah. And of course, it's where we get the expression MILF from. I don't even know what that means. Um, Mom, I'd love to love. Just friend with. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> but yeah, that was. That was that film. And a lot of the stars of that film actually went on to mm. moderately better things for a short period of time afterwards before disappearing. Mina mm. Suvari was in American Beauty. Mm. Yeah. Anyway, we're not here to talk about their films, we're here to talk about ours. Oh, I wish we weren't. <laughs> okay. Mine, anyway. Well, that's just too tempting, isn't it, Lee? <laughs> Go on then, Simon, nominate your first choice, is one it, choice. Is it Krull? No, my first choice, and I'll, Are you yeah, looking I'll, at... sa- I'll save the odd ones for later on. What's he looking at? Don't look. What's he looking at? Don't spoil himself. it for yourself. This usually we know what we're going to talk about, and the listeners don't, which makes it a bit of a game for them trying to guess what's coming up, or just you know to pique their interest about what's coming up. 
But tonight, we don't know what one another are going to talk about. So this is as much of a surprise for us as it is for the people listening. It's not a huge surprise. No. The first one is Tron. You can't choose that. You've already <laughs> chosen it for one of the other podcasts. I've had two or three <laughs> rejected. Um, Just tell me before we start, you were banging on about some documentary you wanted to pick, right? Yeah, well, we'll talk about that later. I was going to say, just tell us now what the documentary was going to be. It's D.A. Pennebaker's Depeche Mode 101. Oh, God. See, that would have been a crazy film to pick. Why would it have been crazy? Well, I mean, this is this is sort of a... That's like a band road movie. It's a road movie, yeah. Yeah, but it's I mean... It's genre. Well, I suppose it is genre. It's music. This is what I mean. Everything I've picked is genre all, of some all kind. All of mine is genre. Yeah. No <laughs> yeah, but when I say non-genre, I don't mean not of any genre at all. I mean not of sci-fi, fantasy and horror. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Oh, so I'm expecting lots of fantasy from Simon and lots of horror from Lee, quite <laughs> frankly. Well, interestingly, I think the ones I've picked, um, I keep looking, I've, I've placed objects around the room to remind myself because my memory is so bad. Um, oh, so he was looking at a piano, and his first choice is the jazz singer. The piano. No. Um, no, okay. Let's just jump to my first choice. David Fincher's Fight Club. Wow. Okay. okay. I, do you know what? I nearly picked that for our fantasy podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing is, is it fantasy? Because essentially, well... Well, it is fantasy, because it's two people who are the same person. Spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've done that now, yeah, yeah. No, because that's all happening within his head. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's represented, but I think with it's all life. of my choices, there's, there's a distortion of real life. And America, a matter of life and death, technically, is yeah. his fevered dreams as he's uh, suffering from, um, you know, uh, but, whatever it is that's going on inside his head. But, it, yeah, it is, it is fantasy, but it's not fantastical fantasy, is it? It's not mm. Mm. Talking dragon no, it's fair thing. enough. I mean... You know, this podcast's going to have to be quite loose anyway, isn't it? So, Fight Club. Mm. Tell me about what it is you like about Fight Club. You're not allowed to, are you? <laughs> well, I think back when, the, when I first saw it, and I just thought, this is possibly the coolest film I've ever seen. And I just remember... Had I you hadn't... seen Seven at the time? I'd seen Seven, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, certainly. But Fight Club, I mean, it was initially the Dust, Bo- Dust Brothers soundtrack at the start... It's got all the kind of the qualities of almost like a really, really cool pop video. Mm. You know, just with really cool music and obviously great performances. Um, after Seven, it's probably the, the next film on from Brad Pitt. Obviously, he'd had this reputation for not being a great actor, you know, and uh, there was that appearance in, uh, what was he, in True Romance, wasn't there, where everyone sort of went, Oh, he can act. <clears throat> He'd been in California just before that. All right. That wasn't such a bad film, was it? And, no, California's all right. It's David Duchovny, wasn't he in that? Yeah, David... Uh, do you know California? <clears throat> yeah, I've never seen it all the way through. It's one of those I always catch halfway through. Well, David Duchovny and Mission... Oh, I can't remember the name of the actress. Mm. Play this couple who want to do some road trip across America, but to afford it, they need to take somebody who'll pay petrol... And Brad Pitt's character, and um, what's the actress called? The one from Strange Days and stuff. Oh, God. Anyway, they take Mm. this young couple along. The reason why David Duchovny and his partner are taking the road trip is to visit locations where serial killings have taken place. Mm. And what they don't realise is that Brad Pitt and his girlfriend are a pair of serial killers. 
Spoilers! I've seen it. Yeah. It's very vague. I think it's one of those where it hadn't. It's okay. quite good. It's mm. nicely shot. It's a bit of a silly story, really. But, you know, most films are silly mm. stories when you actually get down to it, aren't they? Mm. Mm. Brad Pitt. Brad Pitt, Edward Norton. I mean, you can't go wrong. And, and Meatloaf does a creative thing that's worth bothering with. So. <clears throat> Brilliant. Well, Brad Pitt is one of those actors who's actually a lot better than his reputation would have suggested. Mm. And I would put him into the same, you know, um, Tom Cruise as well. Mm. Great actor whose reputation doesn't serve him well. In fact, they were both in an interview with a vampire together, weren't they? Yeah. Which is not a great film. No. But not, that's not either of their faults. No. <clears throat> the great thing about Fight Club is David Fincher... Started off with Alien 3, and that was... Well, obviously, it made a lot of money because it was an alien film, but obviously, critically, it wasn't a success. But what he did then was Seven, which he thought of as a personal film Mm. because his reputation wasn't going anywhere after Alien 3. I mean, his reputation could have died altogether after Alien 3. So he did what was, in essence, a fairly cheap basically a sort of horror film come police procedural. And, you know, Seven was a massive success because it just caught the crest of a wave in the late 90s. And that made David Fincher's reputation to the extent that he could say then from that point, right, what I'll do now is I'll make a Hollywood movie, then I'll make something that appeals to me, and I will alternate between the two. And his immediate film after Seven was The Game, Right, okay. Oh, yeah. Which is a great film. That wasn't bad, was it? Who did that have in it? It was... Um... Sean Penn and Sean Michael Penn. Douglas. That's right. It's a great, great film. For a, for a Hollywood movie, it's really dark. Very, very silly. Underrated, for sure. Oh, yeah. It's got a very 70s quality about it. All of David kind of Fincher's... Yeah, yeah, all of David Fincher's films got a very 70s feel. Yeah. Seven does. Mm. Seven is... Very much like cross between the French Connection and you know the horror films of the late nineteen seventies. It's interesting the Fight Club thing because I remember thinking back to um, starting mm. to read comics like Tank Girl and things like that in the uh, late eighties, early nineties, where comic comics were starting to kind of uh, what's kind of disassemble themselves and do different things, where they yeah. realised that they could do a narrative that you just couldn't do in any any other format. And I think Fight Club was the first one I saw where they started using CGI in that creative way, where it was uh, articulating things that previously you just couldn't show on screen. So that first shot of where it ends up going down mm. down the end of his nose, doesn't it? At the end of a down the end of the barrel of a gun, and then mm. you, it pulls back on and his face and his eyes. All that stuff in the flat where you've got the price tag catalog. Yes, tag yeah, the stuff. IKEA catalog. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. It's, and it's it's just, I just thought, my God, this is just. Well, Fight Somebody's Club. brain working in a completely different way. Well, Chuck Palahniuk, who wrote the book, is did I pronounce that correctly? I don't know. That's very much the same sort of thing. Yeah. In yeah. book form. I tell you what it reminds me of slightly is A White Merc with Fins by James. Can't remember. He, this English author, they made a movie of his first book that was an absolute bomb, and I think that did for him. But he wrote books like that, which were on the face of it, which were um, just like pulpy detective stories, Mm. but which had a little bit like Fight Club is kind of a pulpy story, but what Fight Club really does is about consumer society. Mm. And this guy, James, what's his name? Can't remember. 
exactly the same thing. He wrote these stupid, pulpy detective stories about Russian immigrants in Britain and, uh, you know, forming gangs and sort of mafia kind of thing in London. But what he was really doing was his characters, who in a kind of a Graham Greenian kind of a way, would get involved in all these sort of mafia machinations, even though he's just like a regular estate agent or something. Mm -hmm. And it would be all about consumer society. And the way the book's written is that it really involves you in the characters. So Mm -hmm. the pulpy detective bit, which is how the publisher sells the book to an audience, is like the least important thing in there. And it's exactly the same with Fight Club. Mm -hmm. And where I was going with the David Fincher story just now is, so Fight Club's his next personal movie. And his career has gone along the path of every time he makes a personal movie, it is a massive success. And every time he makes a Hollywood one, yeah. it's a moderate success. Yeah, yeah. Like he did... Um, well, it was the first one? Panic Room Zodiac. was the next one, wasn't it? Yeah, he did Panic Room. And then he did... What was the one after that? I can't remember. But he did Zodiac, mm. which was another personal one, which was just as big a success mm. as The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, mm. which was like one of his Hollywood ones. So what was Gone Girl then? Or go gone, gone girl, gone girl. Is that a personal or is that? That's based on a novel, isn't it? A best-selling novel. Mm. Um, Is that his most recent? Yeah, I'd like to think it's personal. I don't know anything about it. I've lost touch. Mm. It's very, very good. It's a very interestingly um, laid-out book as Mm. well. The way it's written. Oh, you've read the book. No, no, no. I'd say it's more of one of. I've met a lot of people who have read it. Mm. in libraries, so they talk about it all the time. Oh, right. Um, Sounds like one. Only the the one. I skipped from the list was um, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Yes. Oh, yeah. Steve Larson. Yeah, he did the English adaptation of that. English oh, language okay. adaptation of that, I should say. The one with Daniel Craig. Uh, yes, it is, isn't it? Mm. Mm. Again, it's very good. It's a bit sub-Zodiac, though. Zodiac's a much better film. Mm. But, yeah, I don't think he actually alternates between... Literally personal in Hollywood <laughs> anymore. He doesn't need yeah, to. If he has two types of project, I wonder what it is. But yeah. I, do, I do suspect it's a personal one. Because I would it's... think so. I think these days it's the case of they're all personal. It's just sort of whether he's angling for a mainstream audience or mm. just catching a mainstream audience by accident. He's a terrific filmmaker. One of my favourite directors of a modern age. Oh, just beautiful. Just they're just beautiful. Actually, I mean, they're one of those films, and it was the same with Fight Club, where you can literally freeze frame. It's <clears throat> why I love Blu-ray. Yeah. Mm freeze frame a film and it's like a it's a beautifully composed photo every time it's I found out with Amelie yes you can pretty much just take any picture of any of his films in fact and they're have all just you beautiful. just foreshadowed something you're going to talk about no I'm not actually. <laughs> that's funny oh yeah. okay because I stood away from I, that because I did think I you'd thought that's that. a fantasy film in fact it isn't it's a bit like your fight club thinking about it but mm. not one funny thing about David Fincher is he very rarely if ever appears in the extras on his discs, and almost all of his films are in two-disc special editions. And I'm not really sure why, except that if you've ever seen him talking, he's slightly camp, mm. uh, which is which, you know, would be an odd reason not to do in front of camera extras. But I just wonder if maybe he doesn't like his screen presence, yeah. because I've only he really does avoid doing extras. And the, I think the only one that I've seen him in was like a bit of B-roll on one of the Alien movies where the camera just goes past him. Mm. But he never talks to camera. I don't know whether he does now because I've not caught up with all the extras on Shy. his later films. But yeah. Like the Coen brothers. Like, just like Danny Boyle. He, I mean, this is a bit important of foreshadowing to me. There. We were talking about this just before, 
just before you arrived, we were both myself and Lee were saying that we were struggling with the non-genre because we, we, we neither of us. It's actually been, really not, easy. You just I, think I, of any director you like, and think it. of all the films that they've done. Yeah, and, but you've got to talk about it. And you know, I, I have to pick something that I'm passionate about, and unfortunately, I'm not very passionate about reality. I have enough reality, reality in my life without. Um, you know, yeah, but you know, it's not so I don't enjoy films that are about real things, but can I get passionate about them? I don't know, they've got a spot in my imagination. Yeah, but you know, some of the films I tossed aside and mm. thought, well, I'd love to talk about that, but I ain't going to, are things like Hear My Song. Yeah. And that is a film that you can get passionate about, and it's got very little to do with reality, but it's certainly not genre mm, mm. in the way I'm talking about. Mm. And The Last of the High Kings, have you ever heard of that? No was made in the late 90s, um, set in 1977, the year Elvis Presley died, and it's just about a bunch of 16-year-old kids. It's about the summer holiday between the last day of high school and first day of college. Mm-hmm. And it's just a gloriously bittersweet, nostalgic film about the 70s and about childhood. It's so- like I would have picked Boyhood, but I've only watched it once, and I don't feel like I can talk about it. So, But I would like to give that a... Well, you know, Lee and I are here to pick up the slack if either of us had ever heard of it. <laughs> uh, I'm out of touch with movies. I have to oh, pick things from older than five years ago. It's a film you must see. Must see. Uh, mm. Nine years in the making. Where it, was, uh, it starts with a small boy. And oh, yeah, you talked through. about this before. Yeah, yeah. Should we move on to Lee's choice? Yes. First choice. Yeah, I don't like reality, as you all know. And... Uh, Anything real is a bit of a, you know. Uh, Lee, so I, so actually, Lee, Lee, before you go on, go on, actually, I look at you and I think fantasy is your reality. <laughs> so non-genre is your fantasy. I suppose you're right, really, yeah. So I'm expecting you to say something like, oh, The French Connection is such a fantastical movie. It's like science fiction. It's got like... These things called police officers <laughs> driving these things called cars. These, uh, can you believe it? These cars, they travel along the ground instead of in the air. It's unbelievable. I tell you what, you are not wrong. <laughs> You're not wrong. Uh, okay, well, listen, I, I, I had a real tough time with this because there are things like Chaplin. I mean, I love all, all his films, but I couldn't pick any one to say, <clears> oh, that's really... I thought you meant Chaplin by Richard Attenborough for a minute. <laughs> Actually, that's not bad. I, yeah, I, like it, I don't think I've seen it, but I can yeah, imagine it would Robert be. Downey Jr. in it. He does mm. an absolutely incredible version of, um, of Chaplin. Richard Attenborough is actually a really good director. His yeah. films tend to get overlooked a bit since he made Gandhi, and Gandhi's kind of one of those millstone films that the yeah. rest of your careers are always going to be badly compared. Yeah, that's right. But, I mean, uh, the film he made about C.S. Lewis was just glorious. Oh, what's that called? I'm just trying to think it. of the name. I can't remember. Well, not not just Anthony, Hop- was Anthony TV. Hopkins was playing C.S. Lewis. Oh, wasn't he? how can I forget I that? Yeah, because the TV adaptation or a version with Joss Acklin had the same title, didn't it? Oh God, you know what I caught about three minutes of yesterday. Mm. I don't know what channel the TV was tuned to, but something was on, and I thought, "What the hell is this?" And it was four by three, and it was um, recorded on video. So it was, you know, that sort of old Doctor Who video mm, look. Mm. And the sound was all being captured by microphones in the room. So the sound had also that sort of slightly echoey quality that you get when there's no ADR or nobody's <laughs> treated the sound. 
But, and yeah, it was Christopher Plummer and a couple of actresses I couldn't have named, but that I recognised, doing On Golden Pond. Oh, right. <laughs> For some reason, American TV had decided to remake, basically, a film that was actually so recent, there was no reason whatsoever to want to remake it anyway. And they must have done it within 20 years of the film having come out, otherwise it wouldn't have been in 4 by 3 It was just the oddest thing I've ever seen. Anyway, sorry, Lee, was your first film? With Nail and I. Ah, with uh, Null and I. With Nail and I. Or with uh, Nail and I. Okay, now, the, the quick reason... pop quiz. Yeah, go on. The I, what's his real name? Uh, I do know that, but I don't care. Okay, I shan't reveal it then. Maybe we, if you remind me at the end of the yeah. podcast, we'll say it for the listener. Okay. Right. It's Marwood. Yeah, it is Marwood. <laughs> you know, it kind of spoils <laughs> it. When you... Anyway. With Nail is a film that I remember seeing reviewed by Barry Norman back in... With Null? How can you pronounce it incorrectly? How many times have you seen it? Listen, I say nuclear. No, you just said it right. <laughs> Did I say it right? <laughs> yeah. I can't hear it. I you were intending John... to say it I wrong, so you said it right. I don't say, say, say right. John Pertwee, but I do know people who do say that. John Pertwee and the Autons. <laughs> I haven't said John Pertwee for about three years. And the Autons. <laughs> John Pertwee. John Pertwee and the Autons. <laughs> and, and with Nail. <laughs> Anyway, with Neil and I, um, mm. it's one of those films, it was reviewed by Barry Norman all those years ago, and I saw a clip um, uh, of Richard E. Grant downing the um, lighter fluid uh, in, the, in, the, in the front room, and I thought, I'm never going to watch that film. It looks rubbish. It looks rubbish, and yeah. it's, it's too real, it's too urban for me, so I didn't watch it. And then years later, it must have been early 90s, and it just so happened to be on TV, and I caught him shouting out, Scrubbers! Or something like that. <laughs> and I thought, oh, this is quite funny, actually. I was sitting and watched this. I was going for a punk face. Um, and I, th- I was just wondering, <clears throat> why the hell did I miss this film? It's, it's, it, from start to finish, it's one of the most quotable films. It's one of the most funny films. It's an absolutely... Everything about it is brilliant. And it's almost like we anybody could have made it. It, it has got that handmade feel. Because um, the director, who I can't remember the name of him, um, it was on Handmade Films, wasn't it? I, I think it was. Is it, it George Harrison's company? Yeah, I think Possibly. I think it might have been. It was... Um, uh, uh, it starts with an R. Oh, my God. I know, it'll come. <laughs> it'll come. But anyway, it's his first film, wasn't it? And yeah, he did a book, actually, as well, later. And, yeah, yeah. And uh, short stories. he was saying things like, you know, listen, guys, I've never done this before. I've never made a film. Could you give us a hand? So everybody was pitching in. I thought, this is amazing. This, when you look at the film... Um, you know, how did he do it? But the, the more you get into it, the more you get to see the interviews and you listen to the commentaries and all that, you learn that he made sure that everybody went over their lines over and over and over and over again until they absolutely lived, though they, they could live the words. So he didn't have to worry about it on set, so he didn't have to kind of direct them so much, they could just do it. And there's this great story about Richard E. Grant because he's teetotal that he had to get drunk just to see what it's like to act drunk. Um, <laughs> and, and he nailed it. You know, he, he was pissed, and then he remembered how it felt, and then he puts it in the film, and you genuinely think he's half-cut half the time. But that, everything from start to finish, it just really inspired me, because I was trying to do films. I wanted to be a filmmaker at some point, and I thought, wow, it'd be great to make a film like this, and it's actually doable Yeah, but on a low budget. But... But the, the whole point it, of that film is it's all about the personal experience oh, of the is. guy who's making it. Absolutely, yeah. And that all the best films are, to some degree. Yeah. Even things like, you look at things like Seven and Fight Club, right? 
obviously David Finch has not gone through any of that stuff. But what he's doing is he's putting on film the mind that he's been living with for the 20 or 30 years previously. Do you know what I mean? They're very art school. So he's he's come from a perspective of this is what's been going through his mind for 20 years. Whereas the guy who did With and I, and we're not going to remember his name, that's awful. I know, he'll come back to us. <clears throat> what he's done is he's put his experiences of as being a struggling actor in the late 60s on film. Hmm. In much the same way as Swingers, for example, which should have been one of my choices, but which got ousted for something hmm. else, puts their experiences of... And that's why it works so well. That's why I get ahead in advertising. You know, that might have been had some. You might have had some experience in that that world, but it didn't. It just didn't follow through the same. I don't think he ever. I don't think he ever made a film after that that was as good as with Nell and I. I don't think he made any other films after no, that. To be you honest, in fact, you didn't need to. You, you make that film and then you stop because it's. it's well, no, because that film comedies. doesn't make you enough money to live no, on for the. <coughs> whatevs, but it, it's so good. It was a disaster when it came out. Yeah. Nobody knew what to do with it. And I tell you what, the funny thing about it is they advertised it as a sort of late 60s, uh, sort of, no, a, a modern 1980s response to late 60s counterculturism mm. through the mindset of, you know, by this point, seven years of Thatcher. And so, who are the modern counterculturalists? And actually, the ironic distance on it is there's nothing countercultural about what they're doing at all. They're just getting pissed and ignoring the world. Hmm. <clears throat> That's where the truth But the funny is. thing is, you That's advertise it like that, and it looks like it's going to be urban, and it looks like it's going to be the non hippie hippies. And what it really is, is 60 minutes of that film is set on a farm with. Two guys who've not a clue what they're doing being chased around by one of their gay uncles. Yeah. <laughs> it's so good. But, uh, and everybody, I, know, I, I seem to know everybody in that film. That's the thing. I mean, you and I, possibly yourself, somewhere, I don't know, have been brought up with flock wallpaper. You know, we've had hippies, mm. I've always had hippie type people around me. My, most of my family have been through that culture. Most of them have been on weed some point of their life. They're into Jimi Hendrix. So I know these people. The guy that comes with a cowboy or carrot, I flipping know that man, right? <laughs> I absolutely know him. And he used to come round to my house <laughs> called Ron. I know him. But uh, <clears throat> these people were reality to me. And, and those are the kind of life, that was the kind of lifestyle that I really wanted to get away from when I was growing up. I hated all that. Um, side of uh, the, you know the hippie culture and all that I couldn't bear it, but when looking I'm back looking on it, now. yeah, but when looking back on it and and seeing how well he captured it, I, it's almost like that could have been filmed in the sixties. Actually, he's really nailed the feeling of that time, or the early seventies for me. Yeah, but it's he's the tail end of it, it though, isn't it? That's yeah. the point. It's the tail. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's yeah, the dog yeah. end. It's the fag end. Mm. It's the you know. Um, it's very sad. It feels like 1972 rather than 1968. It, yeah, totally. It? I agree, actually. But that's, that's, yeah, that's more what I can And that's kind of the point of the film. It's, you know, ultimately what it's about is how all these people in the 1960s had these huge dreams about the fact that they were changing the world. And they didn't. It didn't. It just crashed and burnt. Yeah. And yeah. this is a film about two guys who didn't even bother having the dream. 
<laughs> and so, and uh, you know, this kind of got a it's bit reality, of reality. Actually, it's more real than you. Yeah, know. yeah, yeah. You know when people say oh, to yeah. you, "Oh, oh, the sixties must be great." Well, how about this? The eighties. All these kids now going on about how good the eighties were. Oh, the eighties must have been really cool. Have you not had that yet? Right, and yeah, and it, they're talking about it. It's like it's it's, it's wonderful to be mid eighties all of a sudden. But you look back at it and think, well, actually, we were all just working in jobs, or we were just in school. Not everybody was walking around in day glow buggles outfits or whatever. Yeah, and the music they? was shit, and the fashions were shit, and, and the and was on the telly oh, was oh, shit. Oh, shit. Mm. Apart from, apart from Simon, gray. who's one of these people that you're talking about. Simon loves the 80s, I think he's careful. No, I just think <laughs> it was one of the most creative periods in music. But it, for the same reason we were talking about only last week, wasn't it? We were saying about the... About when the you're... Years. Yeah. Yes. I wouldn't, yeah, I wouldn't have said it was creative. I would have said it was... Creative. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> oh, no, 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 I would have said there were some very strong reactions, but I, mean, I don't if... think it was creative in the way the 60s were. Oh, no, 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 no. But there was a lot going on with technology. Things were changing, so in that respect, I think there was a lot There was a lot happening. There was a lot of positive yeah, stuff. Yeah, the first computer crap. came out, stuff like that. You know, it's kind of good. Well, the, the music, music music industry we've got now was born of the 80s, wasn't it? It's just got more and more stark. Anyway, it can stop. Waterman. Yeah. <clears throat> but anyway, um, yeah, so, yeah, with Nella now. Wow, two 10 out of 10 choices so far, it's an amazing I would say. That, do you know <laughs> Am I going to spoil it by picking know, something dreadful? That's not even on my list. I was, I, what? That was that was my fourth, and I brought it in because well, I with thought, no. yeah, because I suddenly realised what the hell am I doing? It's got to be this film. I've got to bring it in. Well, yeah. you know what I say. I with can't believe I'm not going to pick swingers. I might have to. I might have to throw one of my other three films out. <laughs> I can't throw any of my other three films out though. <laughs> Why have I limited? You can this throw to one of mine out. It's ridiculous. <laughs> you will throw one of mine out. Swingers is one of my absolute so favourite films what he does, of right? all he says, time. I'm going to throw swingers out. I'm not going to talk about it. And then he goes and talks about it. And then oh, no, I wasn't going to say. And he gets his other three choices. And it's a cheeky move. I don't know. I said I did say on Facebook when we were discussing this that I was happy for anybody to go off at slight tangents. You know, as long as we actually picked three films each. I wasn't going to say anything more about Swingers than that is one okay. of my absolute favourite films of all time. But the reason on it's not on the list is because Gregory's Girl. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? <laughs> 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 do you know what? How can you? Uh, yeah, what do you do? Swingers, Gregory's Girl. How do you not put Gregory's Girl on your list? Well, it's got Claire Grogan in it. Anything she's in, I'll put. Anyway, yeah. And eight, <laughs> eighties as well. Okay, so that's my first choice is Gregory's Girl. Oh right, okay. Yeah. Director again? I don't remember. Bruce, uh, Bruce Forsyth. <laughs> <laughs> Bruce was the director for Bill Forsyth. Bill Forsyth, of course. <clears throat> Actually, it's quite an interesting story. He he was working in... It's Glasgow, isn't it, rather than Edinburgh? Or oh, now I'm confusing myself. Yeah, it's Glasgow. He was working on a kind of arts project for kids who weren't going to go on and do anything, really, in Glasgow in the late 1970s. You know the kind of thing, I mean, uh, an arts project for people in their teens who, you know, the time when employment is starting to turn into unemployment. Mm. He got together a bunch of these kids and made this film. I can't remember what it's called. It's about a fridge or something. It's ridiculous. 
It's it's like this really <laughs> stupid cheap comedy about a bunch of kids who steal a fridge or something. It's just crazy, and it's called How to Steal a Fridge or something like that. It's just <laughs> stupid. People listening to this podcast who know what I'm talking about will know exactly what I mean. It's just really odd film that is completely completely forgotten. But then the next film he makes after that is basically cast from exactly the same act people who'd been acting in that first one. And in that first one, they just all did it as amateur students who'd come off the street. Not even students, kids who'd come off the street and taken part in this project, basically. And then now here they are in Gregory's Girl. And actually, because he'd made that first film, even though that first film wasn't a success, because he had it under his belt, you can show that to people and say, look, I've made a film. Here's a script for another film I'd like to make. And they say, yeah, okay." Because the thing about Gregory's Girl is... It's got that central conceit, hasn't it? It's about the unpopular kid in the class who falls in love with this girl who comes in who wants to play football. And that kind of sells itself because nobody had ever done anything like that before. And yet it was something that everybody of a particular age could understand whether they were for it or against it. You know, whether you're the kid in the class that says no I'm not having girls in my football team you could understand the film because you'd understand the film from the perspective of not wanting the girl in your football team and if you were happy to have a girl in your football team you'd understand the film from that perspective but that's just the central conceit and what Gregory's girl is really like is Douglas Adams in that the central story is just the tiniest part of the film and what the film really is, is just a whole lot of other detail that the director and the actors have just thrown in there. That You know, one of the best scenes in that film is a bit where Gregory's getting up in the morning and there's nobody in the house because he's getting up at like quarter past nine or something, late for school already. And he gets up and he leaves the electric toothbrush on and it's sort of going zzz, 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 yeah. all over the counter and all this other stuff. He, you know, he puts some toast in the toaster and as he walks out the front door, the toaster's starting to smoke because the bread's still in there burning away. Walks out the front door, heads off, starts going towards school and this car pulls over with a learner driver in the passenger seat and Gregory starts having an argument with the guy who's teaching this girl how to drive and throughout this entire argument, this guy who's teaching this girl how to drive is saying, indicate, look in your mirror, while he's having this argument with this lad. And it transpires that this is Gregory's dad wondering why the hell Gregory's still only walking to school at half past nine in the morning. <clears throat> do you know what I mean? That's got absolutely nothing to do with a girl who wants to be in the football team. And yet the entire film is as filled with ridiculously comedic and yet at the same time beautifully poignant things like that because we've all been we've all done that we've all been it's in a situation like, like that cartoon strip isn't it yeah, yeah. reminds me yeah. of the Rogers <clears throat> and all those sort of cartoons that were hanging about the yeah it's got a bit of that got to a bit it. Of that in it it's been but years since I've watched it I remember all the cookery lessons and it's just conversation most of it isn't it and mm. even everything else it's like that I say we've all been in a situation like that I don't mean exactly like that but I mean we've all been in a situation where there was a three way conversation going on where one person is having and, you know, these are the memories of our childhoods. And the bit at the end where he finally, ultimately, meets Claire Grogan and mm. they're doing that ridiculous thing where they're lying on their backs, dancing with their hands. Mm. When you're a teenager <laughs> and you don't... And, 
when you're a teenager, you want to connect with the opposite sex. Yes. Yeah. The opposite gender. But you don't know how. And in the end, you end up doing stupid things just because you don't know how else to do it. Well, that, you spend like all your lying time on looking, your back dancing with your hands. Or you spend all your time looking for a girl who likes the same things you do, which we know now isn't necessarily the formula for a good relationship, really, is it? In fact, it's probably the opposite of a formula for a good relationship yeah, because, yeah. you know, people say, oh, you've got to be with somebody you've got lots of things in common with. What the hell do you talk about when you're exactly the same as the person you're talk with? Talk about talk to who, hey? <laughs> well, <laughs> well, there's probably a, yeah. You know, that's I think that's an exception to the rule. But you know what I mean? If you, but you know what I mean? Most people don't have the kind of in-depth conversations that Doctor Who fans have about Doctor Who about anything. But if you share absolutely everything about absolutely every interest and your interests, yeah. most people's interests, when compared with the kind of interests we have fairly superficial yeah. so you're not gonna particularly have things to talk about unless you have things that are uncommon with your partner where you can say oh look what i've done or what i've been up to or what i'm interested in that i can share with you mm. has there been a film made about somebody going out with themselves fight club <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> yeah. I, i'm sure there has in fact yes Virtual Reality, I think it may have been called, had, oh, what was she called? She was the one in Casanova that, it was back in, it was back in 1999, I think. It was a cheap British film. And what happens is this girl, can't remember her name for the life of me, gorgeous. She goes into a fairground or a circus, or something like that, and there's a machine there, the virtual reality machine or something, she goes into the machine, and it's one of those films which has that little bit of magic at the start that kickstarts the plot. She goes into the machine, and the machine takes some virtual reality blueprint or something, but when she comes out of the machine, so does Rupert Penry Jones, I think it's Rupert Penry Jones, Mm. and he is her, built by the machine, as a man, and it's about the relationship she has with herself as Rupert Penry Jones. So there you are. Damn it. That's one example <laughs> of it. <laughs> was that any good? It was okay. I mean, the best thing about it was the performances, because she's a brilliant actress, even though I can't remember her name. She was in Casanova. And Rupert Penry Jones is a great actor, and I'm sure it was him. I wouldn't swear to it absolutely, but I'm pretty sure it was him right at the mm. start of his career. So the acting in it was really good. Um, I mean, who? You know, it was a cheap mm. British film. It wasn't great, but it's got a fairly strong idea for a plot. I think it was one of those films that all the papers gave like one or two stars to because they didn't really watch it. Mm. But that I, actually, I thought it was perfectly reasonable. I liked it. Good idea. Mm. Mm. Shadowlands, was that film you were trying to think of? Shadowlands, that's the one. That's, also, uh, for anybody who's listening who's no idea, that's the C.S. Lewis story directed by Richard Attenborough with Anthony Hopkins. And the director for Nella Now <coughs> was... Bruce, somebody. Bruce Robinson, that's, that's it. It takes a little bit of time sometimes, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, shall we move on to another one? Was gonna, oh, oh Gregory's Girl, though. If anybody else has got anything they want to throw in about Gregory's Girl. I say Gregory's Girl, I remember actually being watching it in an English lesson. The first time I saw it was at school where the teacher really? got the video in and said, no, this lesson, we're watching a film, we watched Gregory's Girl. Wow. And I don't think... 
I don't think related to the lesson at all. He just sort of said, you should watch this. Yeah, maybe, because it is. Two, it reminds me ever so slightly of, and I think this came out afterwards anyway, but it's got this a similar sort of sensibility, is Patangian Kipperbang. In fact, yeah, Patangian Kipperbang was 83 or 4, whenever it was Channel 4 launched, because it was their yeah. opening night, wasn't it? I think, or opening week. Most annoying title I've ever Yeah, but great film. But yeah, that was shortly <laughs> after Gregory's Girl. And then that was kind of... I saw it, it always felt like a bit of a TV film. It never it never felt like a film film to me. So Tang and Kibberbank. No, no, Gregory's, Gregory's Girl. Girl. So it never appealed to me. It was the same time, you know, like I said, all that urban, slightly rea- reality thing. I, I what about Kes? Something like that. Yeah, Kes, Kes was another one. Kes. Kes. Kes, yeah. Kes. Uh, yeah. Same deal. I couldn't deal with that. But bought some the black stuff. You know, I didn't like any of that kind of gear. It was only later on when I started picking it back up in the early 90s. I really mm. liked it. And Gregory's Girl. And you suddenly thought, it was a revelation, oh, Gregory's Girl. Oh, it's fantastic film. Really? The Penguin. <laughs> I mean, these are films about what, youth. But... i tell you what Gregory's Girl is, though. It is the, it's the absolute point at which the 70s turns into the 80s because it's mm. very much 70s sensibility in the filmmaking and very much an 80s story mm. it is absolutely where the 70s turns into the 80s i think it was 81 it came out or 82 yeah, so it was just catching that moment when you know the post-punk thing started to turn into the sort of new wave thing with adam and the ants and then duran duran and all that Planet Earth by Duran Duran, great song. Mm. You could never have predicted what was coming from them afterwards, from Planet Earth, really. Anyway, Simon, your next choice. Oh, my God. Right. Do I go... I'm trying to remember. Right. Frozen. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I did see Inside Out this week. What did we'll you think about of that? The end. Adored I it. Adored oh, did it. you? Absolutely adored it. I thoroughly recommend it. Oh, okay. And for anyone who says it's a rip-off of the numbskulls from the Beezer, it's not. Obviously not. You're not telling me that Pete Doctor in Pixar, American, is going to have read the Beezer, are you? So, anyway. <laughs> no, it's, it's beautiful. And it, even to the point where it works on such a good adult, intelligent, emotionally intelligent, psychological level yeah. that I even started wondering whether the kids would enjoy it, but they absolutely adored it. To the point where they've actually said really... they, pre- they prefer it to Frozen now. So that's great. Oh. So it's really useful to use. Mm. And, and to show children, I don't know why, but there must be a reason for it. I haven't seen how it the brain works. Yeah. Well, oh, what it is is you've got a bunch of different characters, and each character represents a different emotion. And they've even got names like Joy, haven't they? Yeah. And yeah. so basically, what is because I suppose that's the way hormones work, and this is how emotions work. Is that what actually happens with emotions? Is you know, if something bad happens, your brain will release hormones that makes you feel sad. Because, as a reaction to the bad thing that's happened. Mm. You don't feel sad because of the bad thing that's happened. You feel bad because of the hormones that your brain's you, released, effectively, You I could suppose. actually think about what happens in this film and think, you know, if you're in an emotional situation, you're thinking, why am I feeling like this? You could actually look at this film and think, yeah, it's okay, it's all right. It's things like sadness is actually a useful emotion that in conjunction with joy... And I've probably, for any doctors who are listening, I've probably explained that completely wrong. But you know my point is that... Yeah, no, yeah, exa- yeah. exactly. But it does it does make the point that the, the supposedly, inverted commas, negative emotions are actually very positive. Well, they've all got uses. Yeah, exactly. If you'd never... Well, they say you'd never feel happy if you couldn't feel sad. Mm. And while I suppose in technical terms, in terms of those hormones being released, you could feel happiness... You wouldn't understand it as being any different from what you felt all the time. 
if you didn't have something to compare it with. Without giving too much away from the film, obviously the main character is is a child uh, of sort of the age, I don't know, she's about seven or eight, something like that, Mm. maybe a little bit older, Um, whereby obviously she's coming to this change in her life where the real life is starting to creep in. She's starting to understand the real world and... And essentially, she moves house. She has to move away from everything she knows. There's a lot of change goes on, and she doesn't know how to deal with it. So you get this situation, and then you see how those emotions, and and that's played out in the form of the the uh, the character Joy, who kind of fronts up it all because it's a child. Because that main emotion is joy the whole time. They just want to be happy all the time. Mm. Don't want to be sad. That's the big thing. Well, that's the other thing I was going to go on and say. If you've got negative emotions, mm. the other thing they teach you to do is to do something about them. Mm. to affect some kind of positive change so that you're not having the negative emotions anymore. And the people are obviously suffering psychological problems are the people for whom that comprehension, that that's why you're having the negative emotions to make that change, isn't getting through. Mm. Mm. And basically that's what psychology is all about, I suppose, when you get down to the roots of it. But also accepting, you know, when you're sad, there's a reason why you're sad. And and also the big thing that... Mm. Certainly, with the grieving process that I'd been through in the past, um, and also sort of the end of relationships and things like that, there is a grieving process even within that. And the big thing with that, I always learned, was that sadness is right at the tail end of the whole process. Sadness is to do with acceptance, mm. and the film reflects all of that. What, what I will say is that because <clears throat> the child is at a certain stage, you could literally do a sequel after sequel after sequel of, of applying it to different points in people's lives and how those emotions and, and, you know, and, and it's funny because obviously it's well like they could do a sequel but they could, well, they could do a sequel they certainly yeah, you they... know take her through puberty or something like that I don't know I have to be careful how they did it but you know it could be fascinating <laughs> that would be great it would it would and and certainly the girl gets in this situation where certain without giving away the story certain emotions get sidelined yeah I think that perhaps this is one that we shouldn't spoil it <laughs> yeah is no 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 it's speak. just really really interesting and I and just they love all die at the end yeah, yeah. <laughs> right so that was Simon's second choice Lee what's your next film <laughs> hey um go on Lee what's your second choice right okay yeah my second choice yeah go on <laughs> Amadeus Really? Mm. Wow, that's an interesting choice. Mm. Completely out of the blue, that one, isn't it, really? There's a reason for me picking this, <clears throat> because um, I absolutely adore the play uh, by Anthony Schaffer, Schaefer, however you want to say it. I think it's Schaefer. I Schaefer could be wrong. did it, Equus as well. Um, but uh, it, it's it's one of those incredible stories. Um, the basic premise is that Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart is an absolute genius, but uh, in the story or in the play, which becomes the film, he's made out to be childlike, um, buffoon, like a bit of an idiot, really, a bit of a clown. And then you've got this this chap called Antonio Salieri. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. And he is his peer, and he's always wanted to meet this genius. And he gets to meet him, and he goes, well, you know, what is this this thing I'm looking at? You know, this is this is the genius. This is the most divine music I've ever heard. And it's and God is putting it through this thing mm. you know, and he, he can't stand Amadeus so there's I mean he's a real person they're both obviously real <laughs> but um, uh, they're not sure how uh, Amadeus actually died or Mozart or Amadeus so they so Anthony Schaefer kind of weaves the story in about Salieri murdering him or killing him off at least 
uh, when he's at his um, lowest ebb. Um, it's it's the whole the film as the film is brilliant anyway. I, I saw the film first actually, and then saw the play, um, and I couldn't believe how how it how it worked on both mediums so well. So normally you can say, oh yeah, the play's really good, but it doesn't really translate to the film or vice versa. But actually, no, both both versions were fantastic, and I was utterly blown away by the use of his music mm. in certain scenes of the film. For instance, you've mm. got um, Salieri with his machinations, his, his evil kind of plottings, or his his dark side, because he he does try and make Mozart go a little bit crazy at the end of the film by pretending to be his dead father and getting to write Requiem and all that sort of stuff. Shades of Hamlet. Yeah, yeah, exactly, <coughs> exactly. Well, it is really, mm. um, and uh, and the music's being played, and you've got Mozart in his kind of orgasmic state, where the muse is just coming through him, and he's and he's creating this music, or he's he's, he's composing the music, or whatever. And then you've got Salieri on the other side, who's being completely evil. So you've got this joy, this massive, almost divine joy of creating this most beautiful music. And then you've got this evil on the other side. The music's being played through. And you've got this massive juxtaposition. It's just, it works so well. It sounds like it was bipolar. <laughs> well, the, film's, well, the film is almost like that, actually. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a good true. study of madness and, and, and kind yeah. of joy in well, music. It's directed by Milos Forman, isn't it? That's it. That's and cool. he did One Flew Over the Cookies List. Which was on my list. Oh, damn. That was on my list to put on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I see, we've covered yeah. Milos Forman. So mm-hmm. He was a Hungarian director, if I'm... And his yeah. early films in Hungary were so different from what he did when he came to America. They're like these really childish black comedies with lots, but kind of childish pie fight black comedies, but with lots of politics in. Because mm. obviously, I think it's Hungary. It was one of those countries in that area of Europe where there was a lot of political unrest in the late sixties. Same as like in the Czech Republic and places like that. I think it was Hungary though. Mm. And he was doing these really bawdy, ridiculous, like carry on films almost, but about politics. <laughs> but um but not ostentatiously about politics. It's all about minor politicians in small towns, but as a sort of analogy for politics in the wider world. Have you seen them? Oh. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. Uh, great. Very funny and com- and so different in tone from what he did when he came to America. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. But one flew over the Christmas was book before. Yeah, yeah, well. yeah. So he, you know, he obviously translated. He's good at adapting. He's good adapting, at adapting. Yeah. That's, that's my point. Yeah, but this was a play uh, back in seventy nine, and um, it, you know, I, what I what I was when I was looking at this film, I was thinking, okay, the music is going to be all Mozart. There's no there's no incidental music here, as far as I can remember. I think it's it's just all yeah, Mozart yeah, yeah, because he's written so much. And then I went back and I listened to Mozart's. Kind of you know back catalogue as it were, there isn't one piece of music that band's made that isn't brilliant, and you think well, he must have made something that's really crap or slightly average. None of it. Well, it's like, all brilliant. So the guy was an absolute genius, prodigy genius. And him it's and just such a very, very funny thing to make him such an idiot in the film. Well, it's like the player, yeah. and you're yeah. almost like loathing him with Salieri. Yeah, but films about great artists will always find. You know something about the artist. It's like all the films that have ever been about mate, but made about Beethoven have all concentrated on his madness. Mm. Because well, that big dog. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> couldn't resist. 
good that film. was quite that was that was quite a good Beethoven film, wasn't it? Um, about there was one called. Years back. Um, there's been two or was three it Gary films. Gary Oldman who played the part. I can't remember. Um, yeah, in oh, I can't remember what that one was called. There's been some. I was going to cut your ears. That's Joe Walter. <laughs> And then yeah. it's death. <laughs> a little bit different. <clears throat> That's not the one. Um, the interesting thing for me with, with Amadeus, I'd, I've never seen it all the way through, but um, it was a certain, what I thought was interesting was, for somebody who was into the music scene, is interesting the way it works, is that even way back then he was like the first rock star. Yeah. That, he that's was a it. celebrity. That's, that's the thing I missed actually, because obviously he's got pink punk wigs and things through the film. Mm. Uh, whether or not that was the case, I very much doubt it. But he was he was he was painted as the rock star of the time. You see, the other rock star of the time was Paganini. He was like the Jimi Hendrix of the violin. It's just an absolute mad case. And I haven't seen one film that's been any good written, uh, you know, made from, about him. And there should be because there's a lot of interesting stuff about him. But you're right. That's it. Was kind of like. Presented like that on film, I can't really remember whether the. It's a bit like Shakespeare and Marlowe, isn't it? Yeah. You never get films about Marlowe, do you? No. no. <laughs> I don't know because Shakespeare is actually not all that interesting. No. All the films about Shakespeare tend to be about other people, really, yeah. or just sort of, you know what I mean? Yeah. Marlowe. It's like even Marlowe Shakespeare in Love is about Gwyneth Paltrow. It's not about Shakespeare, <laughs> is it? Yeah. Anyway, there you go. But and, yeah, and then Falco um, came out. What me and Mm. What a classic. Well, yeah, there was a big... That was, like, early 80s, wasn't it? Then there was a big, for some reason... there, And this happens, doesn't it? Suddenly, something completely random and out of the blue will suddenly come into fashion for a couple of years before it sort of mm. goes back to relative obscurity again afterwards. And it's just one of those odd, weird, quirky things. But again... Late seventies, early eighties, bit of a melting pot. It was. It yeah. turned me on to classical music, so I went through everything I could possibly listen to. Obviously, but nothing measured up to. I've nailed the my melody. Colours to the mast. I'm more of a Beethoven man. Beethoven kind of took what Mozart did and did a Hendrix on it. <laughs> you know, to sort of go by your I think own you did terminology. Did Cohen on it actually? <laughs> no, he did a Hendrix on it for sure. Right. My second choice was going to be my third choice, but I'll bring it up to second since it's just before we started recording. Lee guessed it, you bastard. <laughs> <clears throat> Barry Lyndon. Anybody who knows me knows I was going to pick a Kubrick film, right? Yeah, right. And, well, I was going to pick Passive Glory, but since we've all picked post-63 films, I'll choose my other favourite because those are my two favourites. Barry Lyndon. Dunno, what can you say about Barry Lyndon? It... I've never seen it. That's what I was going to say. Well, it's three hours long, and... Natural lighting, that's what I'll say about it. Well, okay, well, two things then. One, it's what he made instead of Napoleon. After Clockwork Orange, his next project was planned to be a film about Napoleon. This is mad. He planned to make a film about Napoleon, but he couldn't get the funding for it because somebody else had just made a film about Napoleon. So, instead, he goes off and does Barry Lyndon, which must have cost just exactly the same amount of money. <laughs> but it's a three-hour adaptation of the novel by Thackeray, hmm. which, uh, in the late 60s, Tom Jones, with um, Albert Finney, directed by John Richardson, I think. 
And that had taken a Thackeray novel and turned it into a post-help runaround, 90-minute runaround, quite bawdy. And then Stanley Kubrick comes along and does exactly the opposite. He comes out and makes this film that has a pace and a life so utterly different from anything else that anybody had ever done. It is just inexorably slow but beautiful and it keeps moving the whole thing but the other thing I was going to say about it not the natural lighting yeah that's quite famous it's quite famously all lit by candlelight and stuff like mm. that rather than you know arc lights as you'd normally use no but the other thing about it is it's the point at which Stanley Kubrick starts to become obsessed with zooms oh yeah because prior to this and this is one of the reasons why Passer Glory is my other favourite Kubrick film. It's because that's when he starts to become obsessed with tracking shots. Stanley Kubrick did something in the 50s that was such an innovation in that he started to use tracking cameras rather than edits. So he would have long, long takes. Some of the scenes in Passer Glory go on for two or three minutes. And yet, because the camera's always in motion the film doesn't feel static. It, you know, instead of cut from this profile of this actor talking to cut this profile of this actor, mm -hmm. he just keeps the camera going all the time and has the actors moving in the shot. So in Pass of Glory, you've got people walking up and down the trenches in the First World War, mm -hmm. and the camera's following them. So they're having entire conversations in these trenches on one camera shot. And he uses that all the time after that. I mean, the most famous expression of it is the 15-minute or whatever it is tracking shot at the end of 2001, A Space Odyssey. But Clockwork Orange has got, I mean, particularly noticeably in the scenes with the cars, where the cars going down in that sort of blue-lit, you know, back road, and the camera just stays on the car for like two minutes as it's driving down this road and all this mayhem's going on. He's always been obsessed with finding ways to make his films fluid and in motion, but not in the standard cut from one shot to cut to another shot to cut to another shot way that Hollywood worked. And back in the 50s, Cameras were quite heavy pieces of equipment and it was difficult to move them around, which is why most directors... If you look back at most films from the 50s, even action movies, and most of the cameras are static because it was just difficult to get the cameras moving. And Kubrick got his cameras moving around in those trenches on tracks and, hmm. you know, managed to make something that looked and felt utterly, utterly different from anything else that was around at the time. And, of course, when it comes to The Shining is when the, uh, what's it called, the one that fits on there? Steadicam. Steadicam. The invention of the Steadicam happened at the time of The Shining. And Shining is split between the two different motifs, the tracking shot and the zoom. But Barry Lyndon is the first big expression of Stanley Kubrick in the zoom where he foregoes most of his usual tracking. There's still some of it in there. And uses zooms instead because famously he based a lot of his pictures, a lot of his um, what's the word for the way you assemble your pictures? Your um, cinematography? No, no, no. The um, way you place things in the frame. Composition. Yeah, most of his compositions are inspired by 
paintings from the time. Oh, yeah. And what he does is, instead of using a tracking shot to get to the actors, what he does is he starts with a very wide shot that is basically the painting recreated in the film. And throughout the course of the scene, for two minutes maybe, as the actors are talking, he just zooms in very slowly from this wide shot until at the end of the scene he lands up on the actors. So the end of the scene will be a very tight shot between two actors having a conversation and it's still the same shot that was your establishing shot at the start of the scene. And most people who go to film school will know that the way the grammar of cinematography works is that you have an establishing shot and then you go into tight close-ups and medium close-ups so that you get the geography of the space within which the action's taking before you go in and get your specific close-ups of the actors so that you get, first of all, the geography and then the intimacy. And Stanley Kubrick would do that all in one shot by zooming in. That's what Barry Lyndon is. But also what Barry Lyndon is, is one of the driest, most sardonic, ironic films. Really sad, but at the same time... His lead character in that film is not a nice person and he doesn't dress it up. He says right at the start in the narration, which I'll mention in a minute, that this character is not a good person and bad things will happen to him. But he also shows where that person comes from and the journey he takes him on. And it's even split into two halves across an intermission that would have been in the pictures back in the 1970s. For an hour and 45 minutes, you've got the rise of Barry Lyndon and then for another hour and a half you've got the fall of Barry Lyndon and he makes no bones about it and by the end of the film it's a really sad story but it's directed by Michael uh, directed narrated by Michael Horden using his Paddington voice (laughs) which of course Paddington came afterwards Mm. but if you can imagine the narration on Paddington on a version of Tom Jones that's stretched out at half the speed to twice the length. It is a frankly astonishing, beautiful, unique movie. Just like all Stanley Kubrick's films are, really. So you like it, then? Yeah, I love it. It's one of my all-time favourites, along with Pass of Glory. For very different but very similar reasons, actually. I mean, everything that happens to Barry Lyndon by the end of the film is an ironic comment on something that he did to somebody else earlier in the film, earlier in the story, earlier in the book. Just as exactly the same happens in Paths of Glory. Mm. Basically. Mm. You've not seen it, Simon? No. 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 But I mean, if you've seen A Clockwork Orange or... The Shining to an extent, I mean if you've seen any Stanley Kubrick film you'll know that there's always a really dry sense of humour at work. Mm. Even in 2001 there's a very dry sense of humour at work. Okay, we've talked about this before, they're not comedies, they're black comedies. You're not supposed to laugh out loud, although on some of them you can't help yourself, but, but they're an ironic commentary on the characters. That told me. Um, yeah. I mean, anybody who knows me knew that. In it. Yeah, and so there's some very funny... And he's in Barry Lyndon as well. Yeah. Oh, he is. Yeah, of course he is. And there's some very, very funny sequences with him in Barry Lyndon as well. Have either of you seen a film called Le Patamane? With Leonard Roster. It's a true story about a man who could expel wind at, at will. 
<laughs> I've never seen that. No. I think it's been a very long time since I've seen it. I don't even know if it's available on DVD, but I, I do remember thinking yeah. it was just a great film. Please send me the link on YouTube. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'll try and find it. It's just on your, I suddenly remembered that. Well, yeah, Leonard Roster, obviously, is who we're talking about. In... It's played straight. Really? Yeah. Well, how weird. Right, Simon, what would be your next choice then? Well, I've Your second choice. I've actually like... been sitting here changing my mind completely about my second choice because I realised that the, the, the second and third choice are so similar. But it suddenly occurred to me, I adore The Quick and the Dead by Sam Raimi. Ah. Fair enough. So I was, yeah, that was the only Sam Raimi one I could put on the list that wasn't a fantasy that I was thinking of. Purely it's, for the filming aspect. With the exception of obviously Clint Eastwood films, I'm not really a fan of westerns at all. But Quick and Dead has that say it's that visual thing. It's that it's kind of they're kind of opposites and the same. The mm. spaghetti westerns and Quick and the Dead. Quick and the Dead's obviously inspired by the spaghetti westerns, mm. but what it does is it uses the cinematography in a completely different way yeah. to do the same things. And you've got those Sam Raimi riffs from Evil Dead. Mm. You know, the, the following the bullet straight through the head and all that sort of thing, and uh, and I just I just adore it. And, and Russell Crowe's great in it, which is Unusual. which is a plus. And Sharon Stone. Sharon Stone is amazing in it, really good, and looks incredible. Um, and <clears throat> yeah, Leonardo DiCaprio is wonderful in it, and, and Gene Hackman. The, the yeah, whole yeah, cast. Do you like is... it because of the filming? Do you think it's because it has a, again? We're talking about cartoons. It's very it's stylish. Got a cartoon aspect to it. All this bleaching and awesome. But it's also got a story that suits the cinematography. Simple but strong story. Yeah, yeah. That's it's what... not a cliche. But <clears throat> it's played beautifully. Hmm. This is, I think, what people forget about those spaghetti westerns as well. Because I mean, you look at the spaghetti westerns. You know, particularly those three. Fistful of Dollars, Through to a Good, the Bad and the Ugly. And you think about the images. But what you forget is the stories that he's spinning. And they're very simple stories. But rather than being... Because with a lot of films, you'll take a simple story and you'll complicate it with character incident. Hmm. Not character, but character incident. You'll throw in a lot of sort of hoops that the characters have to jump through in order to get to the resolution. But what The Good, The Bad and The Ugly and those other films do is not throw incidents at them, but instead stretch the story out through the cinematography and the editing and the music so that you've got all the character and all the plot. Or no, all the character and all the story, but not all the plot that a normal film would give you. So it feels entirely different, but it achieves all the same ends. And Quick and the Dead... Mm. Is an, is an example of that, in that it's got relatively simple story that they don't throw too much at, and they don't over-egg it too much, but instead it's all in and the camera work. And there's all the caricatures, isn't there? They're, they're very, very defined, very simple <laughs> characters. You know, the kid. Do you know what it makes me think of? It's like top chumps. They're like yeah. top chump yeah. people, aren't they? Mm. You can imagine them with all their different attributes at the bottom. Know, shooting skill and all that. They're so, like you said, they're so well defined. Funny, we were in the, earlier on we were talking about Hulk the Slayer. You know, yeah. it's that same thing. I know it's obviously not the same film, but you have all these little characters. You had the giant, and then you yeah. had the the archer and and gauntlet. Yeah. It's so that was like that was like Dungeons and Dragons. You had characters. Exactly. Yeah. Had. But but with this film, yeah, no, 
didn't they do it like that as well at one point in the film? Didn't they almost freeze frame each of the characters? Or am I mm. thinking Lockstock more? I can't remember. I think you're thinking Lockstock, yeah. Right, okay. But they almost could. Mm. They almost could. And the fact that, yeah, they, they throughout the film they eventually... It's almost... Um, Oh, you know, the arcade game, you know, uh, what's it called? Oh, yeah. Where the characters fight each other. Uh, the one thing that Kylie Ka- Minogue was in. Street Fighter. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's that same dynamic. Yeah, it is. It is. Um, but I, I, <laughs> but just, I just love Sam Raimi, the fact that he does have this character. It's full of character. It's, it's full of style, <clears throat> beautifully shot, the colours are wonderful. And just it's a, a little bit like... Oh God! What's the guy who did El Mariachi? Robert Rodriguez. Robert Rodriguez mm. has a very, very similar sensibility, doesn't he? El Mariachi <laughs> is a great film. Oh yeah, actually, I'm surprised that didn't enter my list as well. Oh God, there's so many so films. Desperado is great because mm. obviously that's the remake <laughs> of the. But El Mariachi has got so much humour in it, mm. and again, it's such a handmade film. <clears throat> mm. Yeah, and with all the dead. Yeah, exactly. Basically, very similar. I mean, there's not a lot, you know, not a huge amount to say about Quick and the Dead, apart from the fact that I love it, really. Um, and, it, and it is that little mini miracle that it's a Western that I really, really like. I just don't, <laughs> I can't, I find it very hard to latch onto it. Because, obviously, you know, there's, there's the element which is it's a past that never actually kind of happened. Certainly not in the way it's depicted. But, um, but it just seems to have a dynamic that I really, really love. And I think it's a one-off. And you foreshadowed my third film a little bit as well oh, okay. by choosing that. Mm. But we'll come to that later on. Shall we go with your third choice then, Lee? Well, you said it actually in the um, in our little Facebook conversation uh, as a as one to get our brains moving. Uh, this is Spinal Tap, yeah, which is one of those absolute classics. It became a classic pretty quickly, didn't it? Because it parodied. <clears throat> Um, the rock genre and the mock documentaries. I'll tell you what happened. Go on. Made it to telly really quickly. Yeah, it did, didn't it? And that, a bit like um, With Null and I, which flopped at the pictures and then made its reputation on telly, Spinal Tab mm. was on telly within two years, I think. Mm. And as soon as it hit the telly, people suddenly went, oh, what the hell was that? And it was always on late at night. Wasn't it? Yeah, it was yeah. A bit on it, it? But it, yeah, that's that's when I saw it. I saw it when my dad was watching it, and I didn't really get it at the time. But I kind of find bits of it funny, and because I'm into rock and to metal, I was definitely into metal about '86. It totally, I understood that world so much. You know, I said about the hippies, you know, in with Nell and I, and for Spinal Tap, it was the metalers the egotistical kind of lifestyle that all these people. Well, kind were of having. aware of bad news before I was aware of Spinal Tap. Yeah, well, Bad News was obviously, you know, riffing off that. but mm. um, And that was pretty good in itself, because I love comic strip anyway. But mm. the thing about Sp- Spinal Tap is they really did t- tap into the um, rockumentaries of, like, Song Remains the Same and Jimi <clears throat> Hendrix and all these other things that were going on all the time, where they're following these rock bands around. And not only is the filming perfect... But the parody is perfect, and the actors who play them play it with total conviction, total truth. They utterly, you utterly believe that these guys are, you know, they come from 
London, you know, Nigel Tufnell, <laughs> while this one goes up to 11. And it's, they, they all talk like that. You think, yeah, they do all talk like that. Well, <laughs> they all your Black Sabbath. played and sang all their own bits in the film. The, it's, the, it's scored by the actors mm. uh, in the film, which is, you know, every song is a real cracker anyway. The funny thing about it, I suppose, yeah. <laughs> this one's called Lick My Love Thumb. I was just about to say, but, but that's the punchline. The actual lead up to that is him yeah. playing this beautiful, kind of classical piece. And you know, and, you know, and then he says, Yeah, and that one's called Lick My Love Thumb. It's just absolutely brilliant. I mean, Stonehenge, that, that whole thing is so clever because you, they were dropping little jokes in which you just didn't know were jokes until they turned up pay 20 off. minutes later, the mm. payoffs. So there's a wonderful moment where they're kind of having a bit of a conflab with the Yoko Ono of the band who, who comes in and crack, put the cracks in the band. And, uh, you know, he's writing on a bit of paper, he's a bit distracted, and he, he writes, so yeah, we'll do Stonehenge, and he puts nine, well, he wants to write nine foot on it, but he puts inches by accident. So the, <laughs> the person who's doing the model goes <laughs> off, and right in the middle, you, you only see it for a split second, you think, well, what's he writing? You're not quite sure. And it's only when they are actually on stage, and it's their big climactic you know, you know, the kind of second third of the film, a big climactic moment, and then this tiny little nine-inch size Stonehenge is lowered down on the stage, and the dwarfs are bumping into each other, and it's all going to pot. And it got turned into a comedy number. Absolute genius. The whole film is genius. The t- comic timing in that is excellent. <coughs> well, it's directed by Rob Reiner, who yeah, obviously... Rob Reiner, that's right. Uh, but... It's directed by Rob Reiner, but actually it's one of those Christopher Guest projects because obviously Christopher Guest goes on and directs his own afterwards. You must know of the other Christopher Guest ones. The most famous one is Best in Show. Oh, yeah. Right. That's quite good as well. well. Christopher Guest, afterwards, I don't think it starts until a few years afterwards, but then his career kind of eventually devolves into a series of these films, each mm. one set in a different world, yeah. but each one doing the same thing. He did one about the movies and, you know, yeah. obviously Best in Show and several others as yeah. well. Best in Show wasn't too bad, but... But it's the directing from Rob Reiner that really, you know, makes This Is Spinal Tap what it is. Great cast... Great ideas, great comedy, but it's Rob Reiner's feel for the material, mm. and his, you know, his directing of the actors to get that comic timing because it is the comic timing, mm. as much as anything. Because all those jokes, as good as they are, if they weren't as well played and as well timed as mm. they are, would have fallen flat on their faces. Do you know? In another world, I've already mentioned Swingers, and hear my song. On another night, I'd have picked Swingers, hear my song, and when Harry met Sally, which is Rob Reiner. Which yeah, is, really well, it's written by, um, oh, she did Sleepless in Seattle afterwards, which was, but she did Heartburn before. When Harry Met Sally is autobiographical. Oh, I didn't know that. And it's kind of a prequel to a film called Heartburn, which is Meryl Streep and Jack Nicholson. Mm. Mm. Oh, God, I can't remember the woman's name who wrote the script, but... She'd done Heartburn before, which was about the breakup of her marriage. And When Harry Met Sally is kind of autobiographical about how her marriage started. So it kind of forms a prequel. So somewhere in between the comedy of Sleepless in Seattle and the reality of Heartburn is When Harry Met Sally, which combines, I, I think it's one of the funniest films ever made. And that is because the humour is real and because of Rob Reiner's gift for comic timing. 
when Harry met Sally, a little bit like um, Gregory's girl. And, you know, like I was saying about Douglas Adams, it's not the jokes themselves and the story itself, but it's the way it's shot and all the other things that they throw in. And, yeah, so all I'm saying is Rob Reiner, start of his career, I think he absolutely knocked it out of the park. And then, of course, he goes on and does things like A Few Good Men and stuff like that. Mm. I can't get, I can't get a lick my love bump by it. <laughs> you can't watch films about bands anymore without thinking this is Spinal Tap, don't you? But this is this this, this was my point right at the beginning of, the, of saying this is that they were they were satirising the rockumentary, but they did such a good job, just like Austin Powers did with Bond, really, that you can't look at those now without thinking about Spinal Tap. And you can't look at ones that are made since without thinking these people have made this knowing that Spinal Tap exists mm. and are having to filter their film yeah. through the knowledge that people will have seen Spinal Tap. You know, okay, well, I've seen lots and lots. Probably of including them. your Depeche Mode one, Simon. Yeah, you know, the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Have you peppers. seen Spinal Tap? Not all the way through. <gasps> Red, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Metallica, all these I, I, bands. I get it. I, I get yeah. what's in there. All these bands that I really like. They've done documentaries since, and you're still. I'm still thinking exactly like you. What are you doing? This has been, you know, you're just looking silly because it's already been yeah. done. Commitments was a really good film, and it's not music-wise. I, I didn't think it was that great, but it's a great film. It's a great kind of study on how bands act, the dynamics of bands. But Spinal Tap were there way before, and you know, I've been in bands. You've been in bands, Simon. Mm-hmm. We've all been in bands. They really do hmm. feel like that. They've oh yeah, yeah, it. yeah. They've nailed it. And it doesn't matter what kind of music you're making. That's heavy metal. Oh, yeah, well, but it doesn't it really matter what kind of music you're making because even though the conversation would be different, the dynamic would be the same. I always maintained being in a band was like in a, being in a in a really dysfunctional relationship, except there are four or five people instead of two. Mm. <laughs> Unless you're Pet Shop Boys. Oh yeah. Good <laughs> <laughs> argument for duos, isn't it? okay my last choice Uh, well when I say you foreshadowed it with Sam Raimi because he's worked with these guys Coen Brothers again Mm. anybody Mm. who knows me well enough knew I'd have to have a Coen Brothers film on the list which one is it going to be yeah because I do you think he's going to go for Fargo I thought about Fargo so I don't know probably not could be Miller's Crossing oh I tell you what no, oh brother, where are they? Oh, that's a, a great film. film. <laughs> great because film. I love them all. Everything they've done. There are a few ones latterly that haven't been quite of the same quality, but I still love them all because of their sensibility. Mm. You know, I get this quite often after we've done these sidebars where people will say, particularly about Christopher Nolan, if you like Kubrick, why don't you like Nolan? He does the same sorts of things as Kubrick does. And I'm like... Maybe he does, but he does it with a Christopher Nolan sensibility. He does, yeah. Whereas Stanley Kubrick does it with a Stanley Kubrick sensibility, and it's the sensibility I like, not the other extraneous stuff. Mm. And it's the Coen brothers, exactly the same. They could make a film about any subject, with any actors, and any plot, and I'd still love it, because it's their sensibility, Mm. is the thing that I love about their movies. And, you know, I could have chosen Fargo, I could have chosen Miller's Crossing, I could have chosen, actually, the Hudsucker Proxy. I almost <laughs> did. Shawshank? No, no, go who away. Did, no, who did Shawshank? Oh, God, that was um, Frank Darabont. Oh, 
Mm. Hate that film. But <laughs> so let's not dwell on that. Sorry, oh, you, you touched a nerve there. I boy. did. Yeah, it's just I suddenly thought. Yeah, mm. no. Don't whatever you do, don't touch his nerve. No. Hot Circle Proxy was their Hollywood movie. <laughs> they had just had. I don't know. About That's what made me think of Shawshank. Uh, well, they had done about three films in a row that had won prizes at Cannes and stuff. And so there was this big buzz around them. So I think it was Warner's threw 30 million at them and said, right, you know, you've been making films for 2 million. Here's 30 million. What can you make with that? And they made the Hudsucker Proxy. And of course, Raising Arizona and Miller's Crancing made for a couple of million, whatever, did really good business for 2 million. And of course... The Hudsucker Proxy, made for thirty million, did really bad business for thirty million because the same number of people watched it yeah. as watched Miller's Crossing. So of course it flopped. But the Hudsucker Proxy is just such a gloriously goofy film. It's yeah. wonderful. And really, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou is another because they kind of do two different kinds of films. They kind of do the gloriously goofy ones, and they do the sort of yeah. Dark, sort of uh, dark twisted, comedy. yeah. But they do the dark, twisted crime movies as well. Oh, but the but they do. They say the odd bits. You know, they do it with such conviction that you completely buy it. Mm. You completely buy it. Just like watching a musical, you just can. You know, if, mm. if it's done well, you just you don't question how the characters are behaving. So those musical pieces, you know, brother, where out there are just incredible. The, yeah, the music works so well. In the Actually, film. that's so the thing well that kind of spoils it, is because the music became so famous afterwards, it basically overshadowed the film. In fact, there was a documentary came out about the music. There wasn't was, there? and there were live mm. shows and things. But the, you can you can easily go back to the film and just watch it. And, and, and the music fits perfectly. Oh, yeah. yeah. George Clooney. Yeah, I know. I, know. I love George Clooney. But he was in, uh, what was the film about the divorce lawyers? Um, Intolerable Cruelty. Mm. Which is, uh, he plays a divorce lawyer opposite Catherine Zeta-Jones. And the whole film is <laughs> the relationship between the two of them. But he's fallen in love with her and she's just using him as like a case study sort of thing. <laughs> and it is just... But he's playing exactly the same character as he does in No Brother Where Art Thou. So he's <laughs> just this real innocent of a divorce lawyer. <laughs> it's just mental. Their films are just so fantastic. They've got this kind of gloopiness. You know, if you've never seen a Coen Brothers film, probably the first five minutes are going to have you thinking, what the hell is going on here? But as soon as you surrender to the universe in which these films take place... Yeah, yeah. I think Fargo, uh, to take... Um, is it Francis? I can't remember the actress's name. Main character in Fargo. Frances McDormand. Yeah. Yeah, that's right, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. Sounds yeah. right. She's married to she, one of the Coen brothers. Oh, right. Okay. Well, the fact that she's the central character and she carries the film. This kind of She's almost... not even in it until a third of the way through. No, no. Because the and entire... She's pregnant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the entire first third of the movie is the crime. Yes. And she yeah. doesn't it's even... It's horrible. <laughs> but in a 90-minute movie, she turns up Mm. Or a hundred minute movie, she turns up 35 minutes after it starts. Yeah. A bit like Psycho, I suppose, in that respect. Just so that's so what's, what's so fun about their films, that they don't follow the normal pattern that often. Um, oh Brother, Why Art Thou? It does follow a linear pattern of a story from start to finish. 
But all the films it, kind it, of do. Yeah, they, but it but it has these little sketches, or little, these little tiny vignettes within them. You know, like the three sirens when they start singing and coming out, uh, and the guy who's um, knocks them all out and steals their stuff or whatever it is, mm. and the bit where they're driving in the cars, and it's, they're all like little tiny comedic strange vignettes do you know what though there's like little stories that you hear actually happen to people yeah it's like they've turned folklore into a movie basically Mm. yeah it's like that 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 central police officer in Fargo she talks like a real person she's quirky and she's odd and you sort of think oh this is a bit odd and then you think think, well actually I know people like that I know people who have that this is what they do with all their films you go back to something like Raising Arizona and Raising Arizona is you know the front cover of I don't know, the National Enquirer or what do we have over here? Something like um, Take a Break or whatever. Mm. You know, the, the ridiculous stories yeah. you see on the front. My yeah. lover ran off with my Fucking adopted cleaner. child yeah. on our wedding day sort of thing. Raising Arizona is just that. You mm. take a load mm. of those ridiculous headlines, throw them all together and turn it into a plot. You know, this is this mm. is kind of what they do. They take... I mean, Miller's Crossing was like a... Basically, a remake of the Big Sleep, including the, including the Big Sleep. I don't know if you're aware of this. It's quite famous in sort of movie buff mm. circles for having a plot point that's never explained in the movie, because mm. either it ended up on the cutting room floor, or the guy who was adapting the book kind of didn't realise what the plot point was doing and left it out. So there's a plot point that's not explained in the movie that actually means that when you get to the movie, if you've been following it closely enough, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And when they did Miller's Crossing, they deliberately and ostentatiously threw in a plot point that didn't make any sense (laughs) to reference back to The Big Sleep. But this is, again, is what they do. It's essentially a remake of The Big Sleep, but they just took bits from all the sort of... Um, what's the word, film noirs and detective movies of the 40s and just threw them all into this movie and made something some that interviews was with wild. and ages back and they were just sitting there giggling, just laughing. Yeah. Because they're just naughty boys, really. They just sit there and, like you say, throw these daft ideas up in the air and that's what their filmmaking is. That's what I think. Yeah, yeah. You don't have to break your balls thinking about what, what the films are. Do you know what about. I think? Tim Burton would love to be the Coen brothers. Mm. I think Big Fish... Yeah, Done yeah, by yeah. the Coen brothers could yeah. have been an amazing film. You're right, you're absolutely right. You know? rather, than, rather than being so obvious. Yeah. So so there's a, <clears> there's a bit of a theme coming out through this podcast, though, in that a lot of the films we've chosen, including Fight Club and you know Kubrick as well, and some of the other things we've mentioned, Gregory's Girl, I don't know, these are my choices now because they're the ones I'm remembering off the top of my head, but this is Spinal Tap as well, absolutely. And a lot of the filmmakers we're talking about have kind of this weird duality going on where they appear to be obsessed with other movies. And so their movies appear to be informed more by movie making than they are by real life. But actually what's happening is they're making something that's just as real and just as honest. In fact, more so, more real and more honest Mm. than a lot of real, honest filmmakers will be able to by not using the form in such a brilliant way. It's like sometimes you can use the form in such a way that actually becomes more real than if you're just using the equipment. Mm -hmm. 
We ought to put on a 12-hour film festival and stick our choices on. <laughs> I'd watch all of them. They're brilliant. Yeah. I'm just thinking that, yeah. Movie club. I need to join a movie club to make sure I watch these things. Yeah. Make the time. First rule about movie club. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so finally then, Simon, mm. your third choice. Do you know, it's really... That actually ties in with the, my final choice. ties in with everything. It particularly ties in with Spinal Tap. My final choice is Michael Winterbottom's 24-hour party people. Oh, of course. Should have guessed that, shouldn't I? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which ties in beautifully because of what you've just been saying in, in as much as it's to do with what I love about it is... Okay, let's rewind. When I first watched it, the thing that got me about it was it was obviously my interest in the Manchester music scene was quite strong. Big sort of Joy Division, New Order fan, Factory Records, the whole thing, the whole thing in the 80s, saying earlier about the 80s being weak. It was one of the great things that came out of that era. Mm-hmm. And to suddenly be watching a dramatisation of events that I knew about and I lived through. I didn't experience them. I was too young and, and too blinking shy and everything to, to travel to Manchester and experience it firsthand. But I knew about all of it and I read all about all of it and I experienced all of it. And um, and that, that was one level of it. The other level of it is that it plays on this thing of this uh, on a grander scale you get this this thing that the history is written by the the victorious um but also the stories are they grow over time and they get elaborated and become yeah, more yeah, yeah. than they are so it's on the cusp of fantasy because you've obviously the story tells but it tells it as a caricature it does it makes caricature caricatures of all the people to the point where you get you know uh, all of a sudden characters suddenly talk to the camera Mm. And say, actually, I didn't do this. Uh, th- there's a moment where <laughs> I'm trying to remember who is it, Alan Erasmus, one of the characters, the real man, suddenly turns up in the scene, walks on, and say, actually, it didn't happen like this. But you know, <laughs> this makes for a good movie, and 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 things like that. Um, but it's it's just great. And obviously, you've got Steve Coogan playing Tony Wilson, which He's great, which is appropriate because it's when right near the anniversary of his death, and there's been a record put out um, by a Manchester poet. Um, raising funds for the the cancer unit, who I think treated Tony Wilson. So that's out this week. So stick St Anthony into the search bar on your Google and and look it up. And it's um it's actually a poem recited over the top of New Order's uh, "Your Silent Face," which is just a beautiful piece of music. So that's all appropriate. But um, so it's it's Steve Coogan playing Tony Wilson. It's from his viewpoint all the way through. It starts off with him working on um, what was the TV channel? You would have. You would have watched it. Oh, when you were living. Uh, when I was living. <laughs> where, where you were living. When you were living, yeah. I can't remember. I No, I don't anyway, there's, yeah. it's, a, it's a real piece where he went up on a hang glider. And uh, it was to, I suppose it was for whatever version of Nationwide or, or whatever it was in that area. Um, so it really happened. So it all starts with that and it moves on from there and how he, he suddenly sees... You're saying about uh, we had a conversation earlier about the Sex Pistols, um, not on the podcast, obviously, but um, and there's a Sex Pistols gig, and 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 these things do become legend. There's this gig in Manchester of the Sex Pistols, and a group of people were all there, members of Joy Division, um, and Vinnie Riley, and I'm trying to think, and it's really funny because they're sort of saying, oh, that person over there is, such... and these all became really notable musicians, all these people in one place at this Sex Pistol gig who all of a sudden something clicked in their brain and said, they can do it, so can I. And that was the big punk thing. 
And that's where it all started, the whole Manchester scene. And what's really funny is they sort of say, oh, yeah, and over there, and there's this, there's this kid sitting there on his own with ginger curly hair. And over there's Mick Hutnell, but the less said about him, the better. <laughs> and, and it's just it's just a great film. And and there there are things that happen in there that I read about. There's there's I don't a... mind simply read for what it's worth. <laughs> <laughs> Some of their stuff. Um, Not the UB forty stuff. There's little things, and obviously there's the story of Ian, Ian Curtis, you know, who obviously ended up committing suicide. The singer in Joy Division, and there's um, there's an occurrence in which we can see how it's slightly been changed. There's an occurrence where he he has an epileptic fit in the back of a car. Um, so they. They're going to the hospital, and, and one of them decides to nick his fags while he's having this fit. You know, <laughs> anyone got any fags? And they nick him out of his pocket. And I remember them talking about it in an interview. And um, and it's all just that happening on screen. But I just love the character in the same way. It's 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 the past, and it's these things that happen. But it's elaborated in a way to make it a good film, and and also self-aware, so. very self-aware. Yeah. Do you know the? I think this is also Michael Winterbottom because Michael Winterbottom is a bit of a bit of a journeyman director. Really, he changes from one project to another. I looked at the IMDb earlier, and I, I've not seen any of his other films. Well, he's done some really good other films, but then some of them not so good. Mm. He did Nine Songs again, which was about the music scene, oh, yeah. mm. but it's not a terribly good film. But but he's saying about Spinal Tap, you know this this. The Manchester scene and the punk scene was all reacting against what Spinal Tap was all about, and yet it became it started to emulate it. it. Became his home, Spinal you know, Tap. You got things yeah. like Sean Ryder and his his brother up on the rooftops feeding. What were they feeding to the pigeons? They're feeding something to the pigeons that was basically making them explode. Um, and the whole, you know, the Factory Records. The thing that killed off Factory Records was where Happy Mondays they went off it's to. Like carbon at the soda was it something like that? It was. <laughs> what? But they went off to Barbados, uh, and Factory Records were just plying them with money to stay out in Barbados to record this album with uh, um, two of the members of uh, Talking Heads, and they kept plying them with money. And of course, they were they were just spending it on drugs, hmm. and it just basically Factory Records went down the pan because of the rock and roll lifestyle, which it was the whole reason why it kind of <laughs> it just destroyed itself. But in the heart of that was just this amazing, you know, things like the Hacienda was a big mistake, you know, where they piled loads of money into there. Yeah. That's but again, brilliant cast. Um, you've got, uh, what's his face in all of the John Rings? John Sims in it as well. John Sims as Bernard Sumner. Yeah. You know, for me, that was just like, oh, that's so good. <laughs> um, and uh, who played Gollum? Andy Serkis playing, oh, yeah, playing Martin Hannett. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Grumpy old bastard. Seriously, I mean, it's, I just love the film. It's, it's the anti-Richard Branson, really, isn't it? Yeah. 24-hour party people. It's everything done the complete opposite way to the way he did it, really. I don't know if anybody would ever make a film of his life. It'd be a load of board meters and make a few... <laughs> <laughs> well, what do you think? What do you think? Oh, yeah, let's do that. That's the wise thing to do. Probably That's be. board with an E instead of an A. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, no, if you've if you've never seen it, I'd, I'd thoroughly recommend it. Um, I'd also recommend Control, uh, Anton Corbin's film about the life of being Curtis yeah. as well. I haven't seen it. But it's what not was the film? For obvious reasons. <laughs> what was the? I think it was Michael Winterbottom, but it's Steve Coogan again, mm. and it goes back to Barry Lyndon actually because it's set, I think, in more or less the same period. 
And that is very much a case of taking the postmodern thing and shoving it as far as it will go. It really, really badly flopped and got some real pannings from the critics. Can't remember what it's called. Easy to Google IMDb for Steve Coogan and find it. But I watched it and I thought it was an absolutely fantastic film. And I'll tell you what else I really enjoyed with Steve Coogan was The Parole Officer. I knew you were going to say that. It's so much fun. <laughs> it's such a daft film. But it's got the same kind of ethos as the Coen Brothers crime films, mm. where it's just a bunch of complete amateurs. In fact, I'll tell you what it very much resembles is the Coen Brothers version of The Lady Killers. Oh, yeah. Which I never got I, to see that. I, I couldn't oh, whether I, I couldn't bring myself to watch it. No, it got so many complaints because they didn't remake the original Lady Killers. They just took the bones of the plot and did something oh, well, completely different with it. Way of doing it then. It's lovely. I've got Tom it's Hanks a in that. Wonderful film. I oh, know Tom Hanks is brilliant. Is he? Yeah. Everybody. Yeah. It's even got Tom Hanks. Yeah. Is his head <clears> still all blonde in the film? He's wearing prosthetics <laughs> inside his mouth. <laughs> <Is> <laughs> Yes, he is. It's a great. If it's even, it's got. I think is it Damon Wayans from the, who's usually awful, and in this he's absolutely hilarious. Mm. It's just, I, you know, a lot of people listening to this and saying, oh, "What are you talking about?" It is a great film. I absolutely adored it. Maybe I should watch it then. You should get off my pedestal. Definitely, can't moan about something you've not seen. No one knows. <laughs> Dreadful. It's got Tom Hanks in it. Anyway, <clears throat> I don't. I don't understand why people have problems with Tom Hanks. Hmm. Forrest Gump. Mm. That's one film. Yeah, but also, yeah, but it's not him, is it? He's the face on the poster, but it's the director who's responsible for the film. Apollo thirteen. Robert Zemeckis, though, good director. I know. Oh, I can't. No, I can't stand it. <laughs> I've only ever seen it once and I thought it was alright but I didn't know what the fuss was about no, to be honest no no it's one of those isn't it it's, it's been a few few sort of Oscar winners and Oscar nominated ones that have appeared through this Amadeus I, I remember them purely because of the Oscars things talk about Gandhi as well mm. well and Tom Hanks has been in Saving Private Ryan mm. yeah Big's actually a really good film great Biggs. film Big Big story. is actually a really good film. Apollo 13? Yeah, that is a good film. He's not good in it. It's a good film. <laughs> wow. Okay. I, I, I don't think Tom Hanks nothing, is one of those great actors. But... No, he's not. That's, that, and that's my problem, is that he's another one of those actors that was in the right place at the right time for certain films, and his face ends up being on everything, and he ends up being in every film. I'll tell you so what, Keanu meets, you know, Stuff like that, it's like... You know, he's good in The Matrix because he can't act and he's great in Bill and Ted. I tell you what, though, <laughs> The Lady Killers does for Tom Hanks what Oh Brother Where Art Thou did for George Clooney. Well, that sells it to me. I might have to go and watch the film now. You better be right. I mean, it's, compl- it's a completely different performance and kind of performance, but it absolutely... Is there good music in it? Yeah. Right. It's Coen Brothers film. There's never bad music in Coen Brothers films. <laughs> They, you know, they, the t- those two guys are on top of absolutely every department. The cinematography, the editing, the music, everything. You know, with those guys you get a complete package. And they even worked with Sam Raimi. Raimi co-wrote Dark Man for him, I think. Yes. Yeah. That's a good <clears> film. <throat> it is a great film. Love that. 
Now, one film that, where Tom Hanks really grates on me is Polo Express. Oh, I know. Terrible. His tone Again. in that is completely wrong. Anyway. Right, I, I think we're running models. out of steam a bit, so I think we'd better call <laughs> so it a night, going near misses? Because I, I was going to have a hard day's night. Mm. And I thought, oh, it's all music. Yeah. I'm doing all music, so I don't want to do that. Well, I, Moulin Rouge there. as well, I would have. Um, a Chaplin, some Monsieur Verdot, a few others. But, but Swingers, yeah, you know. for me, and Go as well. Mm. Have you ever seen Go, Lee? Um, no. All right, Swingers is... Doug Lyman's first film, actually he did something before, I think, but Doug is his first film. It's a bunch of actors who are struggling to get on in Hollywood. One of them writes this movie, Doug Lyman comes in and directs it, and he casts a load of these guys' friends and other struggling actors, and it's about struggling actors. And Have you seen Swingers? No. Swingers is one of the most gloriously funny and affecting films you'll ever see. It's just wonderful. Yeah, John Favreau wrote it. Mm. It was the start of his career. It was his calling card to Hollywood. I've told you before about the story about how um, Vince Vaughn gets the job in Jurassic Park because of, you know, that scene from Swingers. Doug Lyman, after that, goes on and does Go. Because Swingers has worked as a calling card for all of them. Go's still fairly low budget. What it is is like a... Almost like a portmanteau movie. It tells three different stories. Starts off in a supermarket, and it's about these kids, late teens, early twenties, who all work in the supermarket. And on this one particular day, three of them have things that they go off and do. And the film follows the stories of each of the three of them as they go off and do their thing, one after the other, and then ties up all their stories at the end. One of them goes off to buy some drugs. And it all goes horribly wrong. One goes off with his mate to a bachelor party and they go to a strip club where it all goes horribly wrong. That sort of thing. But the film just has this sensibility that's just completely unique to that. This is what Doug Lyman does in all of his films. He, he'll take even the most mundane of scripts. He did Jumper, which is pretty mundane script. And he did Mr and Mrs Smith, which is a pretty standard script. But he, but by the direction and the acting, he he did the first Bourne movie, which I, could have been, which it, could have been just a Bond ripoff. It was great, and mm. he did something utterly different and unique with it. And now everybody's trying to do, and even Bond tried to do in Quantum yeah. of Solace. But Doug Lyman, what what I'm saying is he'll come to a film, he's a bit like David Fincher. He'll come to a film, he'll take a script, and he'll do something utterly, utterly unique. And Go is just one of those films that once you've seen it, you never will forget it. There's a great, great, great scene with a cat. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> that count for that? <clears throat> yeah. But okay then, right, I think yeah. we're done. Yeah. So I think I think we're not doing a podcast together for two now. I think I've got a guest next week. And the week after was when Simon and I were going to do the preview for Series 9, but Simon's going away on holiday, so I'm going to have somebody in as a guest to do that as well. So I think this will be the last time we speak, more or less, until Series 9 starts. Wow. And then we'll be doing the reviews. We've got one thing to do together before that that involves a little... What? Huh? <laughs> <laughs> A canine and company review. Oh, of right. course. Is that yes. what that was? 
How did he get on the wall? Mm. Yeah, that's going to be the last thing we do before series nine. <laughs> got to do that, haven't we? We've got to do that. Oh, yeah. But until all those things happen, I was JR. I was Lee. I was Simon. And we'll speak again soon. Thank <laughs> you.